Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. When I was graduating film school, my father, who was a theater director and an acting teacher and knew a lot of people, said to me, I've never, I've never worked in Hollywood. I don't know California. I don't know how the movie business works. Um, you're going to have to do this one on your own. It was the greatest piece of advice I got. I, you know, I, I learned so much from him and being a part of the the, the business through my parents allowed me to understand things, but I had to find my way. We all are going to try to help our children as much as we can, but we can't take them across the finish line. That's what they got to do themselves. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. For those of you returning, thank you so much for all your support and for listening and passing it on and telling your friends about it and sending all those messages to me. You guys are unbelievable. Without you, this show would be nothing. I will say that until I am blue in the face, as my mother would say. And for those of you coming for the first time, Thank you for showing up. I appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I do, and hopefully the audience does. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter, or you can go on the website at barrycats.com, leave me a message, and I will be glad to get back to you as soon as I possibly can. And I'm really excited about today's episode with director and producer Michael Pressman. This guy is incredible. And when I think of him, so many thoughts come to mind. But the main thing I think about, honestly, besides the awards that he's won and the extraordinary projects he's worked on and the relationships he's cultivated through his entire career, to me, the one that stands out the most is his relationship with Richard Pryor and how he navigated through flying down to meet him, allowing him to feel like it was a project that he should do and he would feel good about, and letting Richard know in his own way that he could trust him and that Richard would have a voice in the project. And throughout that story and how he tells it, I'm just really, really taken back by how you need to be in this business or any business. Relationships are important. They're really, really important. We've talked about them. But what we don't talk about often is how you form the relationship from zero, zero, and how you make a first impression. And if by chance the first impression isn't necessarily the one that's going to put your best foot forward, because of variables that you can't control, how to recalibrate, how to go back, how to approach things differently, how to adjust, how to find solutions to issues when you want 
to get something that you want, when you want to create a relationship that was never there before, and then how to get it to a point of trust, and then how to continue it throughout that project, whatever profession you're in, and how to figure out a way to keep going day by day throughout the project until it's completion to where the person feels comfortable with you, they care about you, and they want to engage you again in their life and their endeavors. And they're proud to call you a friend and a working associate because you raise the bar in their life and you help them get to another level that they hadn't been before. And if you can figure out how to do those kinds of things in your personal life and your career, I can guarantee you, you will have the possibility of having the kind of career that Michael Pressman has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. I want you to take me way back. So take me to where you grew up, what your family was really like, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business. And then one step further, how do you decide when you're on the acting side of the business to say, I'm going to direct now? I grew up in a you know, in a pretty wild family because my mother was a, you know, a, a modern dancer. She was like member of the Martha Graham dance company. My father was a Russian immigrant, came over with a, uh, with a musical family in the, with an opera company. Your dad was Russian. Your mom was? She was born in Russia, too. She came over when she was two. My father was, uh, was an actor and then became an acting teacher. Um, and then he started directing and I would be as a kid watching stuff that he would direct. I was very close to my father. Um, the, the interesting thing was, uh, I, he had a 16 millimeter movie camera from the war. My father fought in world war two. He was wounded, came back. He was also a, uh, as I said, he was very political and was blacklisted for 15 years of which I just did a play about why was he blacklisted because he was a member of the communist party <laughs> card carrying member in the 30s when they were concerned about uh, uh, unions and your mom no no she wasn't she was political but my father was very very left wing you know but that was very in if you weren't a member of the communist party you weren't in it's like being a like being a Democrat today. Do you really believe that? Oh yeah. I mean, I've said to my father. What I remember years later. What did you say? We talked about uh, rights for black people. We talked about union wages, uh, organizing, um, uh, you know, um, voting rights, uh, um, social security, Medicare. You know medicine for all i mean look what's going on today i mean it's like they're accusing the democrats of being left wing but um at the time that was it and then he got too busy actually to you know we're talking when he was very young when in his 30s but what specifically got him blacklisted in the mccarthy period was he directed uh the communist party pageant at the madison square garden his name was on the program bingo and then I did a play that I directed here in Los Angeles called Finks, which was written by Joe Guilford, who's an, a longtime friend. Great play based on the life of his parents, Jack Guilford, the comedian who was also blacklisted. I used to love Jack Guilford. He was the actor who was in the Cracker Jack, Cracker commercial. Jack commercial. Finally made his made his money that he didn't make all those years. But he was he was a, a lefty and he was blacklisted. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Zero Mostel was blacklisted. There's a whole group. 
how did they get back acting again? So 1952, my father, I'm two years old. He has a burgeoning career in live television. He's very well known. Contract canceled. One of the classic stories of we're not picking up your contract and they don't explain. There's no way to do anything. The blacklist was a was a, a, an event of fear. If you were called in front of a committee, which he was, and he took the Fifth Amendment, which meant he did not name names, but he didn't answer on the grounds of being incriminated. They were bringing in showbiz people into this. Come on, you've got to know all about the Hollywood 10 and all this. So now it was rampant in television in the 50s because of sponsors. It, it, Hollywood was only concerned about the audience and selling and the studios and the infiltration of what they feared was uh, left-wing material in movies, you know, like High Noon. You know, Carl Foreman's blacklisted because of High Noon, you know, because of the lone sheriff fighting, you know, that there was a message hidden in the movie, which is not the case. Um, but in television, it ran rampant because sponsors, whether it was... Paul Mullov or Colgate, whatever, got very scared that if, because there was a, a thing called Red Channels, which was a magazine that came out that listed people who did not, who, who took the Fifth Amendment and who were left wing. And if they said they're working on their show, Red Channels was financed by a man named Lawrence Johnson who had supermarkets all over the country. And they would call the advertisers and say, we're not putting your Palmolo soap on the shelf. So they went to the networks and said, do not hire left-wing people. Hence the blacklist. Now, if you go to that famous movie, The Front, which had Woody Allen in it, the idea of The Front being that they would hire blacklisted writers secretly to rewrite scripts. And that's how a lot of people made their, their living. Actors had the theater. The theater did not blacklist. There was no sponsors. The actors' equity stood by their position. You cannot fire somebody for their political leanings. Can't make a living off of actors' equity. No. Tell our audience as a director directing a 99-seat theater play what you make for actors' equity. I, I suppose you car fare if you're lucky. I mean, car fare if you're lucky. You do it for love. You do it for the art. Um... You know, I think that um, my father broke the blacklist 15 years later in 1965, directing an episode of a TV show called The Defenders, which was a very radical political drama in New York. And they broke the blacklist where what finally happened was enough already. You know, it was the times had changed. Um, I got my father's 16 millimeter movie camera and started making my little movies. How old were you? 13. Now the film for the camera, how much did that cost? How many minutes was in a roll? Uh, about two and a half, three minutes in a roll. So you would only like do one take of whatever you're doing silent, by the way, which was a great way to learn how to make a movie. I got to tell you, take two rolls of six minutes of film and make a three minute, uh, uh, movie in black and white without sound. And my first film was The Fall of Count Dracula. How old were you? 13. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it.
how do you edit the film back then with film? What are the tools you use to edit? And tell our audience the difference between 8 millimeter, 16 millimeter, right. 32. 16. I have copies of these movies on digital today, and they look good. 16 really holds. 16 millimeter was almost a professional standard for documentaries. Um, it was actually a documentary format. It's a. I'd have to say it's about an almost an inch and a half, and if 35 millimeter is like two and a half inches. What does width have to do with the quality of the film? The amount of information that's on the celluloid, which is why if you know a little bit about film size, like for example, every camera, a still camera, is 35 millimeter. Your still film in the camera is the size of 35 millimeter prints. Those prints, which if you've seen film uh, photographs blown up that are 100 years old, still hold the chemicals in the film. It's remarkable. The big, big movies of the day, you know, when they made Ben-Hur and all those spectacles, that was 70 millimeter, triple the size of 16 but 16 millimeter was a uh, almost a professional quality and i had at home or my father must have had it a manual screen and reels the size of half of a, one third of a desk called a little moviola that was not with a motor but I literally would move it like like watching a silent movie. Move it with your hand around. And, and I'd splice it with, with a cutter, and I'd have glue, and I'd put the pieces together. So when you glue film together, you have a straight edge of film and a straight edge of film. Do you glue it on top of? Yes, the... one little piece on top of the other. God, and the glue held it. Yes. Even with the hot movie projector going around and around it didn't melt the glue didn't melt the glue because the glue you, you have to keep it there hold it for a while it would stick it would no longer be hot it would be like like it was perfect so you're making your own films yep. when you're 13 or 14 similarly to what people are doing today yes you just don't have an outlet to show it unless right. it's to your friends yes exactly who did you show them to friends do you ever show them to your parents? Oh yeah, they saw them all in the apartment, and then uh, I at school I had an assembly. They, you know, I had at school assembly. I showed it to a couple hundred people, and then that was it. Did your dad ever say after watching, "Okay, Michael, this is great, but here you should have shot from this angle. Here it would have been better if you'd have done this. Here's a technique I like to use doing this," or he never did. Not only did he never did. I have to say that my father was a theater person through and through, so he didn't, he couldn't believe what I was doing with film. He didn't, he didn't know from film. Got it. So you're producing, writing, directing. Are you starring in those little productions? I played Dracula in the first one, and then I took myself out of the others. The James Bond uh, uh, movie. My younger brother, who at the time was uh, 14, played James Bond. Not a lot of Jewish Bonds. Yeah, no, no. He was he was the first Jewish Bond to play. But thank God we didn't have to hear him talk. It was silent. All right. So you're doing this. When do you decide that you want to act and tell our audience how you approached it? And what was your first time you were hired? Well, the first time I was hired was A Thousand Clowns when I was 13. It was. Yes. But how many auditions had you gone on before that? Um, oh, uh, about a half a dozen that I didn't get. So six, and then you got the seventh yes. one. And the best audition, and this is like ice water, ice water. I got a chance. I don't know how I got it to audition for one of the young men in A Man for All Seasons that was coming to Broadway. And I'll never forget it. I think I'm 12, or maybe it was after A Thousand Clowns, I might have been 15, and I walk out on a Broadway stage, and they're calling one kid after the other, and it's dark, and a voice booms from the dark theater. Hello, Mr. Pressman. And it's this British director, Noel Willman, I remember the name, 
and I do the monologue. Dead silence. Thank you, Mr. Pressman. And I walk off. That's it. I mean, it was like so cold. So cold. I didn't get the job, of course, but I just remembered it. I mean, I felt like Dustin Hoffman in the opening of Tootsie. You know, <laughs> We want someone else. We want someone a little taller, a little shorter, you know. Uh, so I, 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 I have, and the list goes on with these kinds of experiences, you know. Okay, so you start working okay. as a teenager. You start booking things. You start making a little bit of money. A little bit of money. I, 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 I bought a Bolex movie camera for $250 with some of the money I made. I wasn't making. What was the millimeter on that camera? Also 16. So you're investing back in yourself. Right. You're making these movies for the sole purpose of your craft and your creative juices inside. You're not doing them to make money. There's no money. You're not doing them to advance your career There's out no in the world. Career. No. Guess what they did pay off, though? It got me into a film school. Got it. So you submitted them to get into film school. So you went to film school where? The California Institute of the Arts. Skipped Carnegie Mellon for two years. I went there for acting and theater. So the message is if you want to be a director of film, learn how to act. Learn what the actor goes through. And when I went up, when I went to CalArts and studied with one of the great film directors whom I admired when I was a teenager, Alexander McKendrick, who had directed The Man in the White Suit and The Lady Killers, which the Coen brothers subsequently tried to remake, but the Alec Guinness comedy, uh, his whole thing was, and I think why I got chosen that first year, is I was coming from Carnegie Mellon, where I was studying acting. So I learned acting, and I learned theater, and then I went to film school. Okay, so you're going to Carnegie Mellon for acting. When did you decide, I don't want to act anymore, I just want to direct? Uh, I wanted to do it all. I never gave up one for the other. I did not, you know what, I... I just didn't think I had an... I didn't want to be at the mercy of being chosen or not chosen with auditions. I, I didn't find that life appealing. What gig did you book, which was the biggest job you booked as an actor? The world of Shalom Aleichem. So you're not making a lot of money doing this. Where are you living? What kind of place are you living in? in you're talking about when I moved to L.A.? To, you're to, at Carnegie Mellon. You're living at school. But then yeah. you go to California, Calvary. probably living in the dorm. I, actually, but, I got a place for about 75, 85 bucks a month in the valley. Alone? Yeah, I was alone for that first year. You have a car? My Yeah, we got a secondhand car for 400 bucks. How are you making a living and how are you starting in this crazy okay. town? Uh, I was, uh, I had summer jobs, so I would like work as a, you know, dishwasher or a, a, a waiter in Fire Island. So I'd make a couple of thousand dollars. I'd use that money. Uh, my parents would send me some money. And by the time I was, um, she's, you know, they, they, they put me through school. They put me through school. First job is working as a reader for a company, uh, and I'm making 150 bucks a week. Okay, so that 150 bucks a week is paying your rent. And That's of course I'm living with my wife to be, and she's working at a record store, so she's pulling in about 100 bucks a week. So you're doing a nine to five job. When do you have time to pursue acting or directing? Uh, I don't forget the acting. I start writing. I start trying to write a screenplay, and I do, and it doesn't work out. And then I have, an, after two years of floundering, um, I had the greatest break of all time. Uh, Jonathan Kaplan, terrific director, whom I've known since childhood. We went to the fame, same school in New York. Father also badly blacklisted. Father was a great composer. Uh, he lived through it. We all lived through it says says to me or I run into him and he says Roger Corman is looking to hire directors out of film school to do these drive-in movies I'll get you an introduction uh, if you do it you'll get $5,000 to make a movie unbelievable 5000 that was fantastic one sound 20 minute film at CalArts took me three years to make I had a 20 minute short so that's what you had to show them to get the interview 
first the interview, then he looked at the short, and then he went, okay, he can direct. Now, I will say, with the intricacy of this, he interviewed me, I pitched some ideas, he approved it, we went to a script, we worked on it, and then he canceled it. You wrote the script, or you wrote, wrote it with, with Roger friend, Corman? With a friend of mine. Then, he canceled the movie, because he didn't want to make it, and then I went back and we pitched another idea called The Great Texas Dynamite Chase, which was a, whim, a, women, a film about two women bank robbers who robbed banks with dynamite. And we, I went out and I raised $200,000 to make that movie. But what's odd is you knew that Roger Corman was wanting you to do these drive-in movies where you would get paid 5000 but you knew the budgets weren't a lot, yet you wrote a film that had big locations with dynamite. Yes. That's very expensive to shoot. Well, it was well why two, would you do that? Because we had lofty ideas and we figured out how to do it for $200,000. Okay, so you raised the money. I raised the money on a distribution agreement that he agreed to have give us, which was I will pay 175000 for this movie if you can raise 200 something like that so investors invested and then made back maybe it was a hundred thousand maybe it was 50 cents on the dollar if i remember correctly 1975 it was a i took the the document and went to raise money it took me about a year with a friend another friend from film school a lot of people joined together to make this film so you make Last it minutes. and then it gets distributed where uh, in theaters all around the country, sold all around the world. But you weren't making any money Not from that. Not a dime. Not a dime. Because you didn't have any of the money. No, no. I mean, $5,000. You didn't negotiate for back end or anything? No, it, there was no back end to be had. He wasn't going to give a penny. That You know what the deal was? The deal was simple. I'll start your career. You want your career start? That was the unspoken situation. There's no, there's no participation. So you make the film. Yep. Roger Corman sees it for the first time. Right. What does he say to you right after that? Uh, congratulations. That's it. Very, very nice. Thank you very much. Took and it. so now you had a feature film to show people to get other jobs. Right. One day after floundering around for another year or eight months, my phone rings. And phones ring back then and you pick it up. <laughs> okay. You're going to love this one. Is this Michael Pressman? Yeah. Hold on for Don Simpson. I've never spoken to the man before. Uh, is, it, is this Michael? I said, yeah. He said, I just watched The Great Texas Dynamite Chase. Would you come in for a meeting? Eight months of nothing. I go in to meet him. He says, We're, we are doing the sequel to The Bad News Bears. Um, and he didn't tell me this. I found out later that I was number 15 of, of the 14 directors who passed on this. Because at the time, sequels were really looked down upon. We're talking 1976. And there was no script. And he hired me and Paul Brickman, brilliant talent, who went on to do Risky Business. To, and he wrote the screenplay. And we worked together. And they, You didn't write it with him? I worked with him. He did all the writing. But we worked on the did story. Did you get together. the story by credit? No. How come? Uh, because he, it was his big moment. He was he was far more along than I was. That could have been really good money. You got that story you, by credit. You want to know something? Let They paid me $25,000 to make that movie. <laughs> it was worth every penny. And then... Did you get back end on that movie? I got a gift. After they saw... I mean, the studio screened that film, and it went so through the roof that it was unprecedented. They gave me two points of the movie. Wow, after it after screened. It finished, after it was screened, and Paul Brickman was not happy. Unsolicited. Unsolicited. Why wasn't he happy? Because he didn't get the two points I did. All I can tell you is that over the years, I've seen a lot of money from that movie. I was being, I was being set up to be, you know, the next Steven Spielberg, and I wasn't, you know. I was making these offbeat comedies, and, and uh, then I did serious films. And but still, you made $25,000. The back end doesn't kick in for a while. So the 25000 maybe you got to quit your, did you quit your job then? Oh, yeah. And then we bought the house in the Hollywood Hills, and I was making, we bought a $40,000 home, and 
payments were 206 bucks a month. Those were the times. I mean, you know, and we were living high. $206 a month for a home in the Hollywood Hills, huh? So tell our audience the first project you worked on where you actually got a check and it was like, holy shit, this is what directing really is. Um, I, I think when I saw that $25,000, that blew my mind. So that today would be like how much money? That would be like 100000 Nice. To see $25,000 and then to understand that the government got a little of it, the agents <laughs> got a little of it, the Director's Guild got several thousand. I think I saw 12000 from it. <laughs> and that lasted a year. From, if, if the house payment's 200 a month, and there are no kids at the time, and uh, my, my, then my wife got to be able to, she got to leave, uh, leave the record store. There you have it. I mean, listen, God, I used to hear my parents talk about getting married. They had 25 cents in their pocket. It sounds absurd. But when you give these numbers today, these sound absurd. This, it sounds crazy. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey, everybody, and I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount, a $100 discount, and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600 and you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. When I was graduating film school, 
my father, who was a theater director and an acting teacher and knew a lot of people, said to me, I have never... I've never worked in Hollywood. I don't know California. I don't know how the movie business works. Um, you're going to have to do this one on your own. It was the greatest piece of advice I got. I, you know, I, I learned so much from him and being a part of the, the, the business through my parents allowed me to understand things. But I had to find my way. We all are going to try to help our children as much as we can. But we can't take them across the finish line. That's what they got to do themselves. One, one them. Dos, two, three, cinco, cuatro, cinco, five, five, cinco, six. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. I want you to tell me what comes to mind. Okay. Edie Falco. Edie Falco. Um, one of the greatest uh, actresses that I've had a chance to work with because she was so um, open, flexible. Uh, the Menendez murders. She played um, the lawyer, um, and uh, we had a blast. Dan Aykroyd, wild man, loved Dan Aykroyd. I I love working with actors. You know, he created the Doctor Detroit character. I watched how he created that. We worked on it. He came up with the wardrobe and the hand and the voice and the this. And um, it was a, a miracle to watch. And um, uh, we were friends for a while. The, be the best feeling I have about Dan Aykroyd is 15 years ago, I, my son went to a school in Brooklyn and I noticed that his daughter was in that high school. And in the phone book, Dan Aykroyd has his phone number in the parent phone book. And I know Dan Aykroyd. I know that if I call that number, he's going to pick up the phone. And I did. And I hadn't spoken to him in about 15 years. And he goes, hello. And I said, Dan, it's Michael Pressman. Oh, my God. We talked for an hour. That's the last time I spoke to him. Sanford Meisner. Sanford Meisner um, is the famous acting teacher that everybody now quotes the Meisner technique. Um so to give you an idea of life growing up in New York theater, Upper West Side, my father was a, an assistant to Meisner for many years in the neighborhood playhouse. And one time my parents invited Sanford Meisner over to dinner and I was 14 years old and they made me do a monologue from the glass menagerie. <laughs> In the living room, I had no idea who this man was. When people talk about the Meisner technique and all this, and I study with somebody who studied with somebody who taught the Meisner. Well, I auditioned for Sanford Meisner when I was 14 in our living room. What did he say to you? Very good. Very good. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what he thought. I was auditioning for the High School of Performing Arts in New York, which then became the uh, school that fame was based on. Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury was a very special experience working on a television movie. Um, and the last time I saw Angela, so the, I was now 37 years old. It was a television movie. Um, she was sharp as a tack. Now we flash forward to about five years ago. She's got to be in her late 80s. She's doing Blythe Spirit on Broadway. I go backstage. I know an actress in the play. It was wonderful. She said, oh, I said, I, you know, I worked with Angela 20 years ago. And she said, oh, you've got to say hello. Really? And I, I'm nervous. And I leave message that I'm here. And the person says, go on in. And I go to, into Angela Lansbury's dressing room. She's about 87 or 88. She says, Michael Pressman. She said, I was just thinking about you like this. And I went. Really? She says, I, I saw your name on television. What was it I was watching like this? And I went, uh, I think it might be weeds. I, that's it. And I was wondering where you were and what you're doing. And we had the greatest 15 minute conversation. And that's the last time I saw Angela Lansbury. Jason Robards. Okay. Now this is a story that defines my love of the theater. I am eight years old. My father has directed Jason Robards 
in a play on Broadway called The Disenchanted based on a book by Bud Schulberg. I see a preview performance at the age of eight. And then six months later, I go with my father to watch this end of the second act of the play in the wings. And I'm standing there and I watch the end of the play and Jason Robarts dies on stage. I'm shocked. I think I turned to my father or he could tell I was thrown. And he said, we changed the ending after the opening. There was a change. He didn't die in the preview. He died of alcoholism on stage. I'm eight. I'm watching the actor on stage collapse and die. Curtain comes down. Jason Roberts jumps up, grabs a piece of furniture to clear the set, runs over, sees me and my father goes, hey, David, how are you like this? And he runs out for the curtain call. I'm watching magic in front of my eyes. I got to see this incredible performance and see his see that curtain call curtain come down, come right up. And he is back as a, you know, Dick Wolf, Dick Wolf. Well, you know, he to this day still remains a bit of a mystery. I probably have met him 15 times and uh, we have a history and I've always felt that he's been uh loyal I've been loyal to him and he's been loyal to me Mariska Hargitay Mariska Hargitay is been one of the she is a we we joke about it it's our professional love for each other I have had the last four years working with her on Law and Order SVU has been one of the greatest experiences working with an actress who is loves to be directed we have this incredible connection. Um, there was a moment once where she did a scene and it was one of the first or second takes. And it's this big emotional scene and it's three minutes long and I've got two cameras going and she, I call cut and she goes, she breathes deep and she's like, I'm welled up with tears and she looks at me and I'm about to say something. She says, Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't tell me you're going to ask me to do it again. <laughs> and I look at her and I go, yeah, I have a note for you. She says, Oh, what is it? And I went, you didn't come here to play this scene. She goes, I get it. Goes back. Does it even better the next time? What I meant was she had played it so that she, in the scene, she didn't want to be there in the story. This woman was interrogating her and she finally has a line in the scene and she says, is this over? But she had played it with, in, in, in the first take, like I wanted to show this person all my emotion. And all I had to say was, you didn't come here to play this scene. And what it did was it made everything that came out she fought it. it was, the next take was like a resistance. I didn't give a detailed thing about how to get there, but she got it. She and I have a shorthand. And that next take was brilliant. Never in a million years would I have known what you meant. She got it. It was in the scene, but what she did was she didn't, so that what happened, and there was a great moment. Let's pretend like I'm an actress and you tell me that and I say, uh, Michael, I'm sorry, I don't understand what that means. What would you say? You're being interrogated by this woman. You don't want to be here. You don't want to go into that emotional stuff. She keeps pushing you. Fight it. Fight it. Don't, don't just all of a sudden start giving her this whole story. Get more and more upset by fighting it. Have you seen, I'm going to digress. Now I would use an example. And let's, I, I would use something personally, but I'm going to share something with you that I saw last night on Rachel Maddow that I had seen. Have you heard of this guy, Michael Bennett, who's running now, put his hat in the ring for the Democratic Party? Have you seen his moment on the, uh, on the Congress floor where he disagrees with um, uh, one of these senators, a Republican senator, um, and he starts to get upset? He says, I have to disagree with you about the wall. He said, people in my state of Colorado lost their homes. That day, he starts to get so emotional, and it came out of nowhere. He didn't know where it was coming from. You've got to watch this clip. This clip is unbelievable. You can use it as an acting exercise. You can see, because he didn't know where he was going. And that would be the other note I'd say. You don't know where you're going in this scene. You didn't come here to play this scene. Your proudest moment in show business. 
I'm just going to say working with David Kelly. Those 10 years, Picket Fences, Chicago Hope, to Jillian on her 37th birthday, um, we had a magical relationship. Um, we also learned how to speak in sign language. I'll never forget doing Picket Fences and winning those Emmys and us sitting there shocked that we kept winning every year and being able to go up on a stage and thank him as well as the Academy for best best show two years in a row. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Um, I made a film that a script that I loved dearest to my heart all about summer stock theater starring Frank Langella called Those Lips, Those Eyes. Um, it, it was followed another film I had made called Boulevard Nights that was pulled from the movie theaters. That was a pretty big shock because there was gang violence and the movie never got really, a, never got a release. Now it's being rediscovered with the uh, 30 or 40th anniversary of the film. But Those Lips, Those Eyes was um, pulled from the theaters after two weeks. It was the same time that United Artists was going under with Heaven's Gate. And it was uh, the the biggest artistic disappointment of my career. And it took me a long time to recover. And thank God for Richard Pryor and Some Kind of Hero, which was about a year and a half later. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town? maybe has access to a little video equipment and how do they get to the point where they start making their mark and then figure out that they have other lanes and other cylinders in their engine and to have the okay. most amazing kind of career that you've had. Okay. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Um, pursue a dream get practical you have no idea what one thing will lead to another be flexible adjust and if you can go through life pursuing the things you love um it will come back in spades it may not be the dream but it will be a reality that is fulfilling and what advice do you have for all the actors out there who go into these rooms where you are and there's only one winner and you're going in and there could be 10 people auditioning, a hundred, a thousand. How do they go in and be that person that makes you say when the door closes and they leave, I have to hire that person the odds are against you so here's the only thing i say make a very bold creative choice when you come in the room grab that role as if it's yours it's yours the best acting audition story i ever heard was danny devito getting the role in the tv series of taxi as Louis De Palma. There were 15 people in the room and they had no idea who Louis was. And Danny DeVito walked in with the script in his hand and he threw it all of them and said, who the hell wrote this shit? And they broke up in hysterical laughter and said, that's Louis. Fantastic. Michael, I had an amazing time today. You're I a great too. man, extraordinary. Congratulations on all your success, and thank you for doing this hey, with me. You know what? This has been an absolute pleasure. The time has flown by, and I wished we could go on for, for much, much longer, but we'll come back, and we'll do it again. It means a lot. Thank you. Okay. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Nye 
989, December 22nd, 2016. Heading reads, Sir, five stars. Comment reads, Brill, great host, great podcast, real great show. Thank you so much, 9989. You are a winner. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatru, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKilledJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain It's never quite over, till it all feels the same You pick your own poison, dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.